my goodness gracious, we are back. It's the score. Hello, scorekeepers. How's everyone doing? Yes, we're on Wednesdays now. We're not late. (laughs) (laughs) We're on Wednesdays now. Um, As always, I am Rocky. I am here with the amazing Paige and Lee. Hello, Paige and Lee. How are you all? Peace. I'm doing good. That good? Okay. (laughs) 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 And of course, this is The Score. This is Minnesota's Opera's uh, podcast all about opera, classical music, pop culture from the perspective of three Black queer administrators. And y'all, I'm sorry if I sound a little weird today. I have a cold. And that has not happened to me in years. <laughs> I tested, it's not COVID. But like yesterday I had to take to my bed because I had a cold. Oh insane. That's there's something going around. There I is. Feel like there's some there's definitely something going around. I had there a cold when I got back from traveling a couple weeks ago. I know a couple other people who have been sick and they were like, we tested and it's not COVID. So Y'all, just because you vaccinated or whatever, or just because you think you don't have COVID, please wash your hands. Y'all spreading, <laughs> y'all are spreading other stuff around here still. Go back to the beginning of the pandemic where you were washing and sanitizing mm-hmm. and stuff. There are some habits we need to keep Thank as a society. You. Refill the, the automatic hand sanitizer things. They've been empty everywhere I go. Like, I need us to care again. And can we stop, like, like with the shaking hands thing? That was really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Wearing masks. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because this is just, this is not it, (laughs) y'all. This coughing and sneezing business. Anyway, but enough about me. (laughs) (laughs) So Lee, you are on the road again. Where are you at? Uh, um, so I had um, a really great opportunity to visit Michigan, one of my new favorite states, definitely top 50 for sure. I haven't spent a ton of time in Michigan, but I got to uh, visit Detroit and spend a day in Flint this week. It was oh, not my really? first time in Detroit, but um, was my first time in Flint. And it was really great to see that despite all of the I would say really complicated media coverage they've received in the last couple of years. Um, It's a city that is certainly on the rebound, right? Um, And a lot of people coming together from the community to try to do a lot of uh, uplift and uh, it looks really good. Things are are coming along. Um, And I got to spend some time with some very talented young kids, young budding musicians, bunch of beautiful black children learning to sing and play instruments and it was very very good for the soul and tomorrow i am headed home to the big apple and super excited to be going home and seeing people i love and also seeing angry people yelling at each other (laughs) and complaining about everything. I can't tell you how much I've missed that. (laughs) All this politeness out here is killing me. So I'm looking forward to being home. Yeah, yeah, sure is. A little spice again. Just a little. Just a little. I I find I still have so much of my New York experience still in me. We were talking the other day, Lee, about how I still, like, find myself walking down the street just talking to myself because like Mm -hmm. that's perfectly acceptable behavior perfectly acceptable (laughs) (laughs) and here i get weird looks (laughs) i find that here in general it's a little uh I don't know. I don't know if people mind their business just a little bit less or maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe because there's not as much going on other business for you to mind. You feel like people are minding yours more. A whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm just mm-hmm. walking down the sidewalk in deep conversation with myself. I feel yes. like that should be fine. 
Maybe y'all should try it. <laughs> Maybe you would work some things out. <laughs> so what's going on with you this week, Iyawo? Oh, this week, this week, what has been going on? I feel like I was I was traveling uh, quite a bit. I went to DC for my partner's birthday, and then I went oh, to Atlanta. I saw that, and I had a bone to pick with you. Oh, Iyawo. <laughs> <laughs> Let's because pick it right here on the air. <laughs> how dare you go and eat that delicious vegan mac and cheese? Listen. <laughs> and not bring anything back for me. I know. I know. I know it made you want to fight seeing it on my Instagram <laughs> stories because that's how I would feel. And I'm sorry, are, but. What is I the just... new name of that place? Because it used to be Soul Veg. It was Solvent. It, that place has had 511 names. So if you have been in the DC area and been to the black vegan spot, you know, the one that's been yes. here forever. It's called yes. it's been called Soul Veg. Right now it's called New Vegan Cafe. For a little bit, it was called Woodlands. And for a long time it was called Everlasting Life. Um, it's the one on Georgia Avenue. Yes. And uh uh which street? It's not um uh is it Harvard, maybe? Uh, uh, anyway, Maybe. the one the one on Georgia Ave near Howard. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's all that's you the need only to one know. That's all you need <laughs> to know. But if you've been there, you know they have the best vegan mac and cheese in the world. It never misses. It doesn't matter never. what time of day, what day of the week it is. <laughs> it it is so good. I don't know what they put in it. It's been good when I first get there, like not long after they open. It's good when you're one of the last people there at the end of the day. You don't even see that many pieces left. Like it's still <laughs> just always good. Like it's, it's so good. good that it feels like that there should be something wrong. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like there's something abnormal here <laughs> going uh, on. <laughs> anyway, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just had to, I just had to talk about that mac and cheese because it was on your Instagram and I was just like ah, ah! <laughs> I, I <want> it. <laughs> and it's funny because even uh uh Damien your Damien Lee messaged me and was just like what's that on your plate it looks, it looks right. <laughs> he said it looks right, and I was like, it was very right. <laughs> I love that he's gone from just eating off of my plate to now literally harassing people on social media about what's on their plates. <laughs> but you know what? I never mind because I'm just like I want everyone to be envious of the plate and to go to that spot because I need them to stay open forever. Yes. Like, yes. Yes. Like, yeah. So shout out to currently new vegan cafe. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see what name is next. As of right now, uh, today is September 30th, 2022. It is called new vegan cafe. Uh, so yeah, but then I went to Atlanta. Um, oh, wow. A festival for uh, an important ancestor in my spiritual lineage, uh, the Metahochi. He was a great uh, teacher and like just all around advocate for African traditional religions and culture, like in the United States, like a lot of people learned from him and he just helped preserve like a lot of knowledge from African spiritual systems and bring together a lot of folks from all over the diaspora too to mm. to learn from each other and to you know celebrate our common root. So that was a really really beautiful festival just around beautiful black folks in a mm. blackity black city <laughs> and doing blackity black things <laughs> and shout out to black folks and all our regalia. Yes. And our African regalia just looking fly as ever. Everyone looked like they smelled like cocoa butter. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had a cold when I got back, but I felt like it was just like my body having to recalibrate itself. Mm -hmm. Sure. After all that traveling and all the wonderful things we did. And now I'm good and things are back to normal. Yeah. Well, 
Welcome back. And this will not be any kind of diatribe. But I think the reason that both of you also had colds is because the weather has turned here. Yes. I don't know who's in charge of this kind of thing, but it's not supposed to be this cold yet. Like, I, I just don't <laughs> think that's supposed to be what's happening. And I knew it would. It was it was too good to be true. I had a couple of good months. I thought Minnesota and I had an understanding. And then like a week ago, all went to trash. It was like somebody flipped a switch. Yes. Last Tuesday, it was 90 degrees. And then the next day, it was 60 degrees. And it was literally like somebody like left the room and just turned the light off. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) How am I supposed to make that shift so quickly in my brain, my body? Yeah. So yeah, my body's rebelling. My body is just like, no, no, you are supposed to be on a beach in some tropical location where it's warm and lovely. I was wearing sweaters all week. And it's September. Like, I I swear I didn't know that was a thing. But once again, joke's on me. (laughs) I was trying to hold out until at least October Mm -hmm. to turn our heat on. She, uh, mm mm-mm. Yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't. I said, y'all, I'm I'm turning the heat on. I'm I'm so sorry. I I, I'm not about this wrap up in a blanket (laughs) life and and wait for, you know, no. Yeah. (laughs) I felt like I I broke like (laughs) like a black cardinal rule. Like everyone has in their minds that date around that time when they turn the heat on for the season. And I I felt like I was I was a little early. I couldn't make it. I am not one of God's strongest soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that's perfectly respectable and fine because we all just have to live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> but on this beautiful Friday morning, yes, this is Friday when we're recording this, right? Yes, TGIF. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, it, 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 it's it's pretty to look at. The trees and things are beginning mm-hmm. to turn and, you know, we're all getting our pumpkin lattes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and we have an incredible guest on the show today. We're so, so, so excited that we were able to grab some time with this incredible person because they are so busy. Of course, I am talking about musician, activist, radio host, podcast host, all the things. (laughs) The (laughs) incredible Garrett McQueen is on the show today and we are so, so, so happy that he's able to join us. So stay tuned and we will be joined by Garrett on the other side of this break. All right, and we are back, everyone, and we are so blessed and happy to have our next guest on the show today. A proud native of Memphis, Tennessee, Garrett McQueen is a bassoonist, an activist, a performer, radio host, and all sorts of other things, um, who says that giving voice and offering space to music by Black creators and marginalized composers drives his passion for music and continues to be his primary focus as a performer. In addition to performing with more orchestras and symphonies that I could possibly name or count, it would take up the whole interview. Um, Garrett is the host and producer behind a number of nationally syndicated radio programs, including The Sound of 13 and The Sounds of Kwanzaa, and continues to work as a guest radio host in a number of American markets. Away from the airwaves, Garrett specializes in music and racial equity presentations with collaborators including the Gateways Music Festival, the Sphinx Organization, the Kennedy Center, the Apollo Theater, the San Francisco Symphony, and countless schools, colleges, and universities. Garrett has been noted as not only a classical agitator, but also a Black talent in public media that you may not know but should. In 2021, the New York Times noted his weekly podcast, Triloquy, which 
watch out for us perhaps on Triloquy <laughs> in the coming weeks um, as a standout and one that is required listening for industry leaders and listeners alike. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the president of Trillworks Media, director of artist equity for the American Composers Orchestra and a contributing writer for Represent Classical. He serves on the boards of the American Composers Forum and the Beethoven Festival Orchestra and maintains leadership and artistic advisory positions with the Black Opera Alliance, the Gateways Music Festival and Lakes Area Music Festival. Welcome to the show, sir. And also, he has very cool locks. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you, We're so happy Thank you. It's always interesting to hear people read excerpts from our bio because I forget some of the stuff that's in there, you know, and maybe just to get us <laughs> kicked off. I am very intentional about black equity and BIPOC equity in that order. I feel like we have gotten lost in the sauce, so to speak, when, you know, it's very important to honor and to acknowledge the uh, intersectionality of a lot of the conversations and uh, initiatives we're putting out there. And Black folks, we have a very unique story. We have yet to be paid. It's a lot of uh, communities out here who have a check that we have not been written. So mm -hmm. I appreciate your highlighting uh, that that portion specifically because we need to do a better job of living in our truth and being unapologetic about that, if you ask me. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. and good morning. And good morning. <laughs> morning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things when I was reading your bio that really stood out to me, and perhaps this is a dumb question, I'm sure you'll tell me if it is. Um, but when I was a kid, I played the clarinet. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. Did I, I've never talked about that before. All through middle school and high school, I played the clarinet. And so what jumped out at me in your bio was bassoonist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's not often that you meet a bassoonist and it's not often that you meet a black bassoonist. And so I'm just wondering when, when and how did that bassoon get into your hands? What was that moment <laughs> that you knew that the bassoon was the instrument for you? Like, how did all of that happen? Yeah, uh, when I was about 12 years old, I had already spent more than a decade, you know, singing in the church. The black church is where I learned how to read music and harmonize and just where my musical foundations uh, were created. So by the time I got into middle school, seventh grade, I didn't want to join the choir because I was like, no, that I, I already know how to do that. So maybe I should <laughs> maybe I should learn how to play an instrument. So I, I signed up for band. I wanted to play the flute. I, I did end up uh, playing the flute, but the uh, band director handed me a bassoon and my mama was happy that she didn't have to buy nothing. So that's, <laughs> so that's, that's how it started. I, I fell in love with, uh, with playing the bassoon and, you know, stuck with it through middle school, high school, got a bachelor's and master's in mm -hmm. bassoon, uh, got caught up in, you know, playing the white man's music for about 10 years and then you know that's what i made the the shift about 2015 2016 made the shift into radio and uh the other sorts of activists and advocacy work that i do but yeah bassoon is is the reason for it all it's right over there i, I try to pick it up just about every day play a play a few notes my, my chops aren't as aren't as hot as they used to be but you know <laughs> and and good, and good for some of the bassoonists out there too because <laughs> If I start practicing again, y'all in trouble. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, Some of y'all, anyway. <laughs> I, I think that's a really great segue to something I'm really curious about, which is how your performing career, um, which seems like it's very active right now even, continues to inform the administrative American Composers Orchestra. Yeah, there's this idea that uh, the performing artists within a an arts institution, um, you know, are the ones who are centered and served and, and all of that sort of thing. Being on the administration, uh, administrative side of things has given me a lot of insight on how, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just talk. I'm, I'm just let, letting y'all know. All right. <laughs> it's given me insight as to the degree to which musicians, performing musicians, just don't have a lot of um, 
insight or perspective on everything that goes into that chair being put there that you sitting in, mm-hmm. you, that check that you cash after the gig, you know. So having that behind the scenes uh, perspective has really uh you know, grow my appreciation for everyone on the administrative side of things. And when it does come time for me to actually get out my bassoon and play on stage, I'm just so much more mindful of everything that went into my being there. Um, I, I think, you know, all musicians should spend some time with an administrator just so that, you know, they can have an idea of what our inboxes be looking like and what some of these conversations with funders be looking like <laughs> and, you know, every, everything in between. So it's, it's really made me you know more appreciative of the the behind the scenes things that you know make the the sounds and the stagings and all of that stuff possible Mm-hmm. shout out to that i know that's why at least in my education in theater even they emphasize that everybody knows something about mm-hmm. something if you're a performer you are mm-hmm. not allowed to leave that building not knowing something about mm-hmm. arts administration or what the stage manager house has to do and all of that. And it also brings me back to, you know, what you were talking about. I'm noticing a, a trajectory from, you know, performance and education. And you talked about getting into activism more. Yeah. Like, I wonder what what that was like. And if like your education experiences like informed any of that. I, I love thinking and talking about like how we're educating black musicians. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes what we get or what we don't get or artists in general, black artists in general, what we get or what we don't get yep. ends up like propelling us to a certain place. So I would love you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think black musicians, we have at least black musicians of, of our generation, we were conditioned to live within two worlds. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm from Memphis. So, you know, they call that home of the blues and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was very familiar with that music and of course the black church music, but also there's a very specific and special uh, brand of hip hop that exists and was born in Memphis. So, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, Project Pat and Three Six Mafia, La Chat and all those folks. You know, Juicy J is famous these days, but I remember when he was just, you know, on the streets, on the corner with everybody else, you know. But then that was always... Uh, separated or put next to the so-called music education. So going to school and playing your scales and and doing all that sort of thing. So, you know, after a while, um, I just decided that that is not normal. That's not okay. So, you know, again, about 2015, 2016, I just sat there. I must have been at playing a concert and I just realized, okay, I have this whole musical life and experience and and perspective that has nothing to do with this space. And there is hardly (laughs) anybody in this space who can help me speak to that or help me explore those things. So I guess that's really where the activism was was born out of just not allowing this this so-called classical ecosystem to continue to live in its own little bubble. You know, I, I have to say uh, a lot of the perspectives that um, I've gained just come from the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that I've interviewed and, and talked with over the years. There's an oboist named uh, David Norville. He was on the first season of Triloquy, and he said uh, classical music spaces are the last unchallenged Um, white supremacist spaces, you know, and I I think about just little gems like that and just move forward and trying to shake things up so that those multiple worlds that so many of us live in can actually be one world. I think it'll enrich uh, the musicians. I think it'll enrich audiences and ultimately it'll enrich the, uh, the broader ecosystem of, of music. We just have to be willing to, you know, shake, shake things up. And then of course, there's the whole conversation of building our own spaces, building our own table. And while I definitely um, affirm that and think that is so important, the white folks not just going to be over there sitting comfortable and I'm not going to say nothing. So that's, that's the, the sort of, <laughs> and then maybe that's another duality that, that, that we can explore. But, you know, my, my activism is, is really just rooted in unnormalizing the necessity for marginalized folks to live within multiple perspectives and, and multiple ways of, of thinking. I should be able to take my whole self into every space. And that's what I'm working toward for all of us. 
May I ask a, a quick follow-up? Because yeah. one of the things that I, I think about relative to my own art making is how activism, or as you call it, agitation, and mm -hmm. and being an artist sit very comfortably together, especially uh, for, for those of us who are, are lucky enough to be Black, right? Like there's a long tradition of it. It makes a lot of sense. People even anticipate it. And then relative to administrative work, there's frequently a, a tension, right? Because you are in this space where you understand that, you know, as a leader in an organization, you may be being called upon to represent a, a really broad set of people and, and concepts, right? And do you ever feel that tension between being able to um, put forward your personal perspectives while at the same time, you know, responding to a job description. Mm -hmm. These days I don't. And the main reason is because I was able to make a way for myself. You know, I've, the, the first thing I'll say is, you know, I, I speak from a lot of privilege there. I've, you know, there's so many privileges that have gone into what I've been able to do and, and build for myself. But, you know, after spending close to two years completely, you know, uh, out here by myself as an entrepreneur, figuring it out, you know, getting grants from here or, or funding from here to keep my projects going, that cultivated for me. A, a bit of confidence that basically, you know, manifests in my bringing my full self to administrative roles and and to you know uh, different organizations. So I'm I'm very grateful. Uh, shout out to uh, Melissa Nan, president and CEO of the American Composers Orchestra. You know, she uh, knows who I am and she knows you know who she hired for the position that I have with with ACO. I'm I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I know that. If one day, you know, if I move away from the organization, things will things will be all right. So that gives me the confidence to, you know, always stand in my truth and, you know, not feel that necessity to, you know, be respectable at all times or to, you know, bite my tongue if there's something I actually want to say. With that being said, I'm also not the bull in the china shop. I really do believe in the power of dialogue. And I think, you know, meeting of minds is where a great change is, is created. So, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of practice again through my um, uh, 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 interviewing sort of work and, and the Triloquy podcast of, of doing a lot of listening to people. And um, I, I really do appreciate being able to utilize that skill uh, in in my work. But change is going to require all of us really standing in our truth and 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 taking risks and and really, you know, forcing our way of thinking and being into the space of normalization. You know, when you were talking earlier about sort of your journey, it really resonated with me because, you know, I grew up also, you know, you know, playing the clarinet, like I said, singing in these spaces where I was just sort of expected to kind of sing this, you know, traditional quote unquote classical mm -hmm. sort of white music. Um, you know, God, I was in a madrigals choir for God's sake. Like <laughs> madrigals. <laughs> Northern Virginia, y'all. Um, but it wasn't until I, I got to college and I just kind of figured that I would just kind of keep going on that track. And mm -hmm. it took me about oh a semester to realize, oh, I no, I don't I don't want to do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do my own thing. And I, you know, obviously I think 19, I wasn't, you know, sort of articulating it i don't think i had the language to like oh this is white supremacy culture and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um but you know what i really really wish that i had had at the time was you know somebody who was around me who i could have this conversation with um and it wasn't until like a little bit later in life that i started to sort of find my people you know feel as if i you know, had the language to to articulate all of this. So I'm just I'm curious, as you sort of started your, your agitating your activism, were there people were there mentors that you had that really inspired you? Yeah. Among the privileges that um, I think about 
is the fact that, again, I grew up in Memphis. I grew up in a predominantly black city. I grew up in a city that wasn't only predominantly black, but where people are just real. You know, I mean, people talk about how dangerous Memphis is and, and that sort of thing. And while that is true to a degree, I think it's just a population of people who don't accept <laughs> certain norms, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the further along I got in my career, the further away from that ecosystem I got. So I, I think that's really the main reason why I was forcing um you know, just my my point of view and perspective and and continue to force that into so many spaces, because it just doesn't make sense to me for, you know, there to be predominant or maybe not. I don't know. It it makes sense for some spaces to be predominantly white, I suppose. But for spaces to be all white, you know, or 99 percent white in today's world, that just that shouldn't make sense. To people unless you're living you know somewhere like anchorage alaska but but then even in that case we got to talk about the indigenous people so again we've we've just normalized the separation of of these spaces and that that has never been okay with me um i just so happened you know in my uh in my undergraduate institution university of memphis i studied with a black man shout out to uh, lacolian washington he's now uh, at the boston uh uh boston community music center uh, running that organization but you know so there was just there were conversations that we had that mirrored my upbringing you know so it was just also normal for me so again the the further along I got the further away from that ecosystem um, I got and I felt like I needed to change it I, I often think about Martin Luther King Jr you know people need to understand that a lot of his activism was rooted in something similar down in Atlanta there was a black fire station, a black uh, grocery store. There was a uh, black wealth, of course, the black church. So when he got out into the world and saw that, you know, not all black people got to live that way, he he wanted to change it. So that's that's really what I want to do in in music. I just I just want people and and not just black people. I do center on center that, but I just want everyone to be able to exist as they are in in their own spaces. So, you know, along my long way of saying, you know, there are uh, several people that I can name, you know, my my parents, shout out to Lacolian, you know, the the hundreds of people that I've gotten to uh, dialogue with over the years in in my work, but really the the root of it is just having uh, blackness normalized and seeing it not normalized in classical music spaces and working to to bridge those gaps, build a bridge between those two realities. Yeah, because I mean, why do you think that is? Because I don't like to use the term predominantly white spaces. I prefer Mm -hmm. white occupied spaces because I feel like predominantly white spaces like implies that there wasn't a choice that was Mm -hmm. being made. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. it's just naturally, oh, just you know, oh, we just like, <laughs> like a river, we just flow in this one direction. That's just <laughs> like, as if this wasn't like a deliberate choice that people were being made. Why do you think that is so prevalent in the classical music industry um, in particular? Because it's uncomfortable. Like uh, you're, you're making a, an incredible point. There is intentionality behind everything in our world. Nothing is just because, and some of those whys are generations behind us and, and not as easy for us to identify uh, as, as it relates to their uh, contemporary manifestations. But yeah, it's just uncomfortable for um, uh, an orchestra patron or an opera patron to think about the fact that the space that they're in has been curated. You know, the, the audience experience that uh, they're, they're in is intentionally that. Um, once we, you know, can separate the emotions from all of those conversations, we can get to that space. That's why things like um, data and statistics are are so important. You know, there are still a lot of people who just flinch up at the word black or the word white, you know, but if you just really look at the way um, marketing happens in most of the institutions, if you look at the way um, uh, development offices work when it comes to individual giving and institutional giving, when you look at all of these things, you see the energy being ported, uh, pointed to one specific community. I think that um, that way of 
being and that way of doing traditionally has been seen as neutral, you know, white whiteness being the norm or, or being the default, when in actuality, you are pointing at, at one global minority, at, you know, actually, at the end of the day, and relying solely on that. So I think we just need to um, amp up our bravery, put on our, our big boy, our big girl, our, our big per person pants, and, you know, dig into these conversations and just, and just realize the reality of it. Whiteness is not the default. It's not the norm. It's just what's been centered, certainly in, in uh, classical music. Could we take a, a, a thread from that? And, and pull on it just for a second, because I, I think what you're saying is something that a lot of folks need to hear, um, mm -hmm. especially one, that data is your friend in these instances. And, and then secondly, there is a history to understand if you're going to undo it, right? Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the things that you're working on either at ACO or ACF or anywhere else that actually work to do some of this undoing. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'll shout out ACF. Under the American Composers Forum umbrella is a digital publication called I Care If You Listen. And there are lots of incredible folks over there doing that data-driven work just to show what uh, gender breakdowns look like, to show um, how uh, time uh, uh, as it relates to certain events, you know, impacts or doesn't uh, impact programming. For example, you know, there has been violence in uh, the Middle East and across the African continent for decades now. Everyone jumped to making programming shifts as soon as there was violence in Ukraine, you know, and, uh, and of hmm. course, you know, our, our hearts go to those people, but that's just a reality that, that we have to, we have to face. I also think about, again, you know, thinking about all the people I've had an opportunity to dialogue with. I want to shout out uh, Titus Underwood. He's a black man, principal oboe of the Nashville symphony. And um, in our last con or in one of our conversations, you know, he made the incredible point that the vast majority of, of uh, the existing uh, arts institutions today, the larger ones were formed, if not during Jim Crow and straight up antebellum slavery. So why would black composers make the stages at those institutions at that time in history? You know, why would there be black performers or even audience members uh, allowed in those spaces with these institutions built during that time? So if that's the foundation of American classical music as it's been institutionalized, of course, you know, we see what we see today. It's just small truths like that, historical truths and contemporary truths that I believe have to be the starting point and the baseline of the work. Again, the way things look is not just how it happened to be. It's the way that it was manufactured to be. So there has to be intentionality in undoing some of that work and, and transforming the field that goes all the way down um, with the way we use that phrase classical music you know folks who listen to the triloquy podcast know when i say that phrase classical music i'm talking about any foundational music connected with culture so i'm talking about the african djembe i'm talking about the chinese arhu you know the japanese shamisen the indian vena and sitar the american iteration of uh, guitar uh, hip-hop gospel jazz all of those are classical musics we have just been conditioned um out of this fallacy of neutrality and what's the norm to uh, associate that phrase with a classical music tied to the culture of one very specific part of the world so, so it's not to discount beethoven and brahms and rachmaninoff and puccini and all of those people we just have to put the way we've been taught to think about that aesthetic of music into the larger context of white supremacy and what it means to actually, you know, affirm the culture of a people, the classical culture of a people that goes for food, that goes for architecture, that goes for fashion. But, you know, we're in this world of music. So that's that's what I, I center on, really helping people understand the context behind our reality so that we know how to move forward. I say to that, it has me thinking about, <laughs> yes, yes, what you're saying about, like, I, I view classical music very much the same way, like anything that is foundational to the larger cultural context to so many other 
genres. And I was taught about this music, American popular music that way. I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to have an amazing guitar teacher in my older sister. Shout out to Dika. Shout out to Dika <laughs> Wyatt. Um, uh, Dika Reynolds. My bad, Dika Reynolds. Um, and she she didn't even only teach me guitar, but she taught me the foundation of how guitar is thought of today, how it's played today. So she yep. was just like, no, it's not just rock. We're, we're actually going to go back to spirituals and mm-hmm. then talk about mm-hmm. gospel. We're going to talk about country, that country is actually foundationally Black and yep. folk. We're going to talk about that as well. And we're going to talk about muddy waters and chuck berry and even then like what she had me studying and who she had me listening to not only their music especially rock and roll or you know folks who are touted as like the i guess the main masters of guitar in that Mm -hmm. in that genre they all they all pointed back to chuck berry right (laughs) (laughs) every single one of them everyone from the rolling stones to uh uh to led zeppelin to yeah the beatles all of those people the beatles yes yes they're all gonna point back to chuck berry and i was like oh so they were creating our classicals what you're saying is okay okay and i wonder what else you view that way and in especially i think like black american music uh I've just, I will never get sick of hearing people <laughs> redefine and reframe that for folks. So what do you want to lift up that maybe is, you don't necessarily see talked about as classical music in a larger context, but to you is just like, we need to, we need to look at this more. Yeah. So for me, when it comes to reframing that phrase, classical music for our American context, I'm thinking about musics that were not imported, you know, musics that were really born here. So first of all, first and foremost, we have the eons of uh, traditions of indigenous musicking. I, I use that phrase musicking, shout out to the uh, composer Brent Michael Davids, uh, uh, indigenous composer, you know, he helped me understand that uh, music as a product to be bought and sold and that sort of thing really in itself is a is a Western idea because in, in, in indigenous cultures and most indigenous cultures, there's not even a word for music. The idea of music is always in conjunction with a ceremony or or doing something. So it's not just this singular thing. So th- there, there's that point to be made. But then alongside that, I often try to help people understand that with uh, the exception of those indigenous traditions of musicking, you know, those field hollers, the Negro spiritual and everything that grew from that really serves as the unique um, American offering in the world of classical musics. So, you know, we can talk about um, Florence Price and William Grant Still and all those people, but at the end of the day, that is a, uh, they were working within a tradition that was imported to the United States, you know, through uh, the means of colonialism and, and that sort of thing. So if we center indigenous musicking and um, uh, all of the um, reverberations and reiterations of the Negro spiritual, for me, that's what I believe we're talking about when we talk about classical music. When the story of, you know, a country's music is is told you know if you tell the story of of jamaican music you have to talk about reggae you have to talk about bob marley you know when you talk about uh, the the story of american music you have to talk about duke ellington you have to talk about sister rosetta tharp and not that there aren't non-black people in that conversation but in the spirit of equity you know i i tend to center that conversation because again there was intentionality around building the idea of classical music and what it is here in the united states so there has to be an equal if not greater bit of intentionality when it comes to dismantling that so you know to to return to your original question you know country yes classical music uh folk americana r&b jazz hip-hop all of those are american classical musics at the end of the day we just have to shed ourselves from the respectability politics and the and the white supremacist way of thinking that makes it ridiculous to think of those things as classical musics because at the end of the day they are Mm-hmm. That also makes me think about the 
the intersections of of class when it comes to what we yep. what we think of with classical music and where a lot of these genres were developed even when white folks did get into them a lot of time it was poor white folks or it was right. the folks that other white folks didn't really mess with because they weren't respectable enough and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's all those all those threads to tease out as well yeah yeah and and look shout out to all of the allies and accomplices over over the ages one of my you know another thing that i'm really grateful for uh, when it comes to growing up in Memphis is just the history that's there. You know, that's where Dr. Martin Luther King was um, assassinated. So if you go to uh, the hotel that he was assassinated at is now the National Civil Rights Museum. So if you go there, there's there's a giant wall of, of everyone who was arrested in the, uh, you know, in, in the fight for freedom, everybody with, with their placards and everything. And it's people of all hues and all genders on that wall. So it's not about diminishing the uh, the contributions of certain communities. It's just about, you know, using conversation and dialogue to highlight why we're where we are and how this reality came to be. So, and, and as I said before, once we get beyond the emotions of, you know, words like racism and words like white supremacy, we can actually move forward. It's the same, same with gender. You know, when somebody starts talking about how trash men are, I'm like, yeah, girl, I agree. We ain't, we ain't worth nothing, you know, or whatever, you know, just to, just to, to, to really take someone else's perspective and, and to, you know, decenter yourself and, and understand what the, what the vision is, what the goal is what the what the direction is can we talk about place just a little bit because mm. um you've referenced memphis a couple of times and in sidebar page i was in detroit earlier this week had a grand hey, time hey, come on, <laughs> yeah. um I'm, I'm curious if you have a perspective on what is it about Memphis? Like what was the collection of experiences and or people and or forces that made it into this place where so much music was able to thrive in that way? Yeah, across culture, uh, pain and heartache and trauma and challenge, you know, has been the richest source of music. And it's a lot of that. In Memphis and historically there has been a lot of that you know going back to the black church that was where people could just um, let their hair down for a minute or or just to feel safe or free so of course the music that's that's born in those spaces is going to be earth-shattering and and so important so I, I think that it's just the the reality of the history and the circumstances of of being there and and, and living in in that part of the country that I always think about I can't live there these days because you know I I feel like I am more effective in my work north of the Mason Dixon you know <laughs> well you know there there are there are certain things that I don't have to think about or engage on a daily basis by not living in that part of the country I'm also you know very uh cognizant of the environment and environmental change so you know Minnesota is a part of the country where I feel safer in in that regard but um I, I just I always highlight and and honor the place that I'm from because it's it's why I am who I am. I feel like if I grew up in a city or a part of the country that was um, white occupied, as you say, Rocky, uh, where, you know, blackness wasn't normalized across, you know, all fields and, and all areas, I, I may not have the sense of urgency for change that I, that I have now. So, you know, it's, it's, as, it's like we say in my um, Buddhist practice, I'm a Nietzschean Buddhist. If, if there's no mud, there's no lotus. So, you know, you have to appreciate the, the hard times the challenging times to be able to have the the good times and i see memphis as as that for me just a, a physical embodiment of uh so many struggles uh so so many stories so much history and how that manifested in a incredibly positive way for me and 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 mine well, relatedly, I'm curious what your experiences in Minnesota have been like, because coming from D.C., Chocolate City, it was, it was a bit the of a culture shock. The city shock. formerly known as. Yes. <laughs> precisely. precisely. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. So I'm curious what your experiences have been like over the last few years. 
Yeah. So I moved to Minnesota from uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. So before I moved here, I was playing uh, second bassoon with the Knoxville Symphony. I moved here for um, a nationally syndicated overnight radio program called Music Through the Night. So uh, my first little while here, you know, I spent as a vampire so they're so they're you know so, so to speak you know sleeping d d during the days maintaining my uh overnight schedule so work was really the the center of it all when my relationship with minnesota public radio ended that's when i began to you know have the time and ability to get out and explore and meet people that also so happened to be at the heat of of covid and and quarantine so you had that next era of my minnesota life that was spent indoors you know ordering target delivery and doordash and doing all that so really it's really only been uh this past year that i've been able to explore and get out and feel like i can uh, experience what minnesota has to offer and i have to say uh so far it's been an incredibly great fit i think what i appreciate most about living in minnesota is that there are um, a number of artists who also brush up against activism and it's easy to just find yourself in those communities you know shout out to uh tish jones shout out to paviel french shout out shout out to uh, Devon Russell Gray, I can, you know, go go on uh, Queen Drea, you know, all, all sort of Damien Strange. All of these people are folks who I have had the extreme uh, privilege and benefit of just getting to know and, and not only collaborating with artistically and creatively, but having a drink with or just kicking it and, 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 and doing that sort of thing. Um, and I love it. I, I love that I've been able to be embedded in that community. I love that I've am respected as a member of those communities you know whenever when any anytime anyone is acting up on the orchestral front they're like all right we'll call garrett see what he think you know and it, and, it, and it really feels good to you know being a part of the country to be here in the twin cities and get to experience that i'm sure that exists you know in cities across the country and around the world um but my experience with that here is the the main reason why i continue to call this home that I I had a similar experience moving here and finding that intersection of activism and art and people who just kind of brought me in. We're just like, yeah. hey, you're here, you're black, uh, you're into <laughs> art and you're into justice stuff. Come join us, come join mm -hmm. us. And mm -hmm. I love that you lifted that up because I, yeah, I'm sure it exists in other places, but I don't know. There's like kind of a special niche that exists here like yep. I, that i haven't experienced elsewhere like so often the people that i'm making art with or happen to perform with are the people that i'm organizing with because yeah be organizing often they're the same people we run in the same circles and <laughs> and it's also really at the forefront like that yeah yeah and, and it's also special because i feel like artists here of of many hues not just black folks actually are a part of their communities it's so easy mm -hmm. to you know go to different cities especially in our line of work we tend to move for the job so you know we create our own little bubbles where we're only engaging with folks in our same industry but that's really not the case here you know uh, I, I know i'm shouting out a lot of people shout out to uh, maria isa a, a boricua artist here in uh the twin cities you know she dipping her hand into politics you know uh running for for Minnesota uh, State House of Representatives. So that means, you know, there are relationships that she has to have with, you know, everyday folks just walking down the street and, and living their lives. And, you know, folks like her are our connection to those communities. So for me, it's just, it's so special to uh, live here and not only, you know, be among the, the artist communities, but just be among the homies. You know, if, if, there, if there are any communities of people that I feel like I'm, I have distance from, it is the folks who play in in the orchestras and 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 do that sort of thing and while you know i can i can i can work on those relationships and reach out to those people it also just feels great to you know know that the homies got your back yeah shout out to the homies <laughs> shout out to all the homies <laughs> well I'm looking at the time and I see that we are just about at time. But before we go, I just want to make sure that we, you know, shout out your website, social medias, where can people find you, listen to you, listen to your work. Um, 
throw out all those credentials. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> as active on social media as I used to because a girl is busy, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, but the 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 main landing uh, spot for my work is my website, GarrettMcQueen.com. Uh, you can also uh, check out the Triloquy podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, except for Spotify, because when NDRE said she was done with Spotify, I said, all right, well, that must mean I'm done with it, too. So, you know, <laughs> so so not spotify but but uh wherever else you listen to podcasts and uh the website triloquy.org uh as far as the administrative things you know i encourage everyone to check out the work of the american composers forum they're uh, an, an equity uh driven and rooted organization that i'm so proud to uh, be affiliated with as a board member uh be sure to check out the work of the american composers orchestra we're over there working to um uh, shake up the the ecosystem specifically when it comes to orchestral music we have calls for scores that we put out there's a call for scores out uh, right now as we're recording this uh, where we will be collaborating with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra highlighting works by black and brown composers exclusively so this is your chance to you know get get your music on stage and uh, record it for your use and um, yeah every, everything else just um, you know google me I'm there the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. It's out there. Google me, baby. That's right. <laughs> well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a cool conversation getting to know you a little bit better. And we will be right back with pure black joy. Woohoo! Thank you, Garrett. Thank you. <laughs> All right, and we are back, and it is time for our favorite segment of the show. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. 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 Peanut Yes, it is pure Black joy where we shout out the Black things and people and places and ideas that are making us happy this week. Um, I hope mine doesn't overlap with yours, Lee. Oh. Maybe it will. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, RuPaul's Drag Race UK has recently premiered and y'all, Black Pepper. Oh, I love Everything. 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 Okay. You do. <laughs> RuPaul, give Black Pepper the crown right yeah. now. Right now. <laughs> now I have not seen the second episode. I can't imagine that she would get eliminated for any reason. Yeah, well, this queen walked into the room <laughs> with a mask of her face on her face, which she then took off to reveal her her real face. <laughs> it was the gag of the century. <laughs> she won the mini challenge. She won yes. the runway. She killed both of her runway. Like she was giving fashion. She was giving art. She was giving humor. She was black pepper is just everything. Okay. Everything. I'm everything. gonna have to get into her. Yes. And where is she from? <laughs> I can't um, remember. She's Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, <sighs> well, we'll find you, out. You, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, not my island. And then you don't kind of remember it, but you but you still know where it is, right? And, right. and that's never any shade. It's just excessive pride. So, Well, anyway. Black Peppa, <laughs> shout out to you. You're amazing. I can't wait to see the artistry that will be on display as you uh, earn your way to that crown, girl. So shout out to Black Peppa. <laughs> yes, Black Peppa. Black Peppa, yes. Well, my PB&J is um, a little news from my alma mater, oh, Howard University. Okay. Howard University, of course. Um. This is a story that I saw 
on uh, their student newspaper um, on Instagram. And it is that they are joining the Denise Graves founder uh, Foundation partnership oh. with the Metropolitan Opera, what? HBCUs, okay. and America's most preeminent conservatories. So this is straight from, you know, Howard's news site, uh, yes. Shared Voices is a really dope program. Uh, I'm just gonna read straight from it. It says contemporary classical music program for undergraduate and graduate students, which is reminiscent of the rich history and connection between elite historically black colleges, universities and America's most preeminent conservatories. Shared Voices is a year long program that will bolster collaboration between students and administrators which will lead to a more dynamic and diverse classical vocal arts landscape across the country. Students from Howard, Fisk, Morgan State, and Morehouse will form musical alliances with the Met, faculty and student, students from Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, Oberlin, and Peabody Conservatory. Um, shout out, shout out. That is awesome that mm -hmm. is super that's awesome amazing. that's amazing i love it especially as like i i love intentional partnerships like this with mm -hmm. hbcus partly because i am the product of such a partnership and organization that <laughs> decided to partner directly with the young artists at hbcu and it was just a really awesome way to help develop young musicians and diversify the field. So shout out to that. This is the first cohort, the very first co cohort, like has just kicked off of um, students who are part of this program. I believe they're kicking off like this week. Actually, I think today, probably like as we're speaking wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the campus of Howard in Washington, D.C. So shout out to that. And that makes me like just super proud that's happening at Howard too, because they already have like a long, the, the music program there is pretty old. It's pretty old. It's like a hundred years old, probably. I don't know exactly, but I know it's at least a hundred years old. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the arts are. So, you know, there's a long legacy there and I'm just wishing everyone who's a part of that the best that they, you know, grow and that we're all able to grow and just see the fruit of this project. So yeah, shout out to Shared Voices. Shout out to Denise Graves Foundation. Absolutely. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. Shout out. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Right? Warmed my soul. <laughs> Mine too. I, I love stuff like that. <laughs> and I will add, um, so last week, the Ebony Magazine's 2022 Power 100 list came out, and I was so excited to see a friend of the show who appeared on the Black Women's Leadership episode um, earlier this summer, Elizabeth Clay Roy, was on the list. Yay! Recognized, Yay! recognized for her work leading the organization generation citizen and she is in really great company also on the list are emmy winner quinta brunson oscar mm -hmm. winner ariana debose mm -hmm. pulitzer prize winner michael r jackson and the honorable justice katanji um so i was super excited for liz liz happened to have been the very first friend i made when I moved to New York, and also the very last friend I saw right before I left. So super excited for her. I'm glad she's getting this kind of recognition um, and congratulations to the other 99 folks on the list. Thank you, Ebony. Yes, absolutely. That's fantastic. And if you have not listened to that episode, it's a fantastic episode moderated by our very own Dr. Lee Bynum. Um, but yeah, go back and check that out from, from June. Let, uh, let Black Women Lead is the name of the episode. But congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I think that's going to do it for us this week. As I mentioned earlier, we are on Wednesdays now, everyone. Wednesdays. So Wednesdays. Now, yes. So now, you know, don't get mad. 
yeah. <laughs> we don't pop into your feed on Mondays. <laughs> Just, you know, personal, professional things. The stars have realigned, so now we're on Wednesdays. <laughs> but speaking of, you know, dropping into our reviews or whatever leave us a review that's what i'm trying to say leave us with a five review stars. with All five right. stars cinco please a few little words would be nice too some mm-hmm. words yes mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. all of those things be sure to subscribe uh, be sure to tell all of your little friends about us and that we are, we're fun. We're not buttoned up. We're fun. <laughs> buttoned up the other day. Like, what? <laughs> Where do you see any buttons? Like, y'all, anyway. <laughs> and of course, we want to thank Garrett McQueen for being with us this week. Yes. Fabulous Garrett. Cannot wait to go and kiki with Garrett sometime soon and hopefully have him on the show again. And check us out because we're going to be on the Truly Queen podcast. I'm not sure exactly the date of that, but it will be this month. So stay tuned. So you might as well just go and subscribe to Truly Queen. Um, anyway, and we'll pop into your feed at some point. Um, but I think that's it. Did I mention everything? Um, you should ask us for words of wisdom, and then we're not going to say anything. But we do that every week, so let's <laughs> get that out of the way. Okay. Well, do you have any words of wisdom? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Bundle oh, no. up. Wash your hands. Wear yeah, your mask. Wear your mask. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just so stupid. <laughs> I just wash don't understand. Just wash your hands. Just wash your hands. Cough and sneeze into your arm or something else, not onto your hands. I've seen that so many times. Oh, Please stop gosh. it. Please stop it. Uh, Please. Well, on that note, <laughs> everybody stay safe, stay healthy, stay healthy, and we will see you not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Two Wednesdays from now. We'll see you then. <laughs> All right. Love you. Bye. Bye bye.